How do you build a time machine? In reality, you have to get lucky as hell. And on the way to doing it, spurn the American automotive juggernaut, rub elbows with movie stars, date models, and create a brand new car company and name it after yourself. Then you put the hopes and dreams of a struggling country immersed in a 150 year conflict into your hands. To top it off, you dive headfirst into the Pablo Escobar world of cocaine trafficking. All of this before Hollywood comes calling. This is the United States versus John DeLorean. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. Detroit, Michigan throughout the 1920s. The machine is running, better than running. It is humming and it cannot be stopped. The assembly line cranks out cars at a speed and efficiency the world had never before seen. This was cutting edge automation. And Henry Ford supervises it all. The verb supervises is an understatement. He was meticulous in his process and maniacal in his enforcement. His use of labor and revolutionary efficiency in production were legendary. The Model T, the assembly line. His mass production revolutionizes American and even global industry. While he initially was known as a champion of the factory worker, raising the daily wage to a staggering $5 a day when industry standard was $2.34, he had grown sour to the plight of the working man and their seemingly endless demands. Give a mouse a cookie and he'll ask for a glass of milk. Ford was no fan of unions, and no longer a friend to the workers' cause. He paid them. They should be grateful. If they didn't like their pay or how he did things, they could seek employment elsewhere. Simple as that. He had put Detroit on the map. His factories were the lifeline that fueled the Motor City. Why was he being treated like the enemy? Later in his life, he grew paranoid about the potential threat his labor force posed. He employed a goon squad to high positions of power. Ex-football stars, tough guys, and other thugs with long rap sheets were used as a blunt force to keep the workers in line and bust any potential union activity. This goon squad often ransacked the homes of factory workers under the guise of searching for stolen tools. One night they came to the east side of Detroit for a known union organizer and Ford employee. This was a man named Zachary DeLorean. Zachary, a Romanian immigrant that spoke little English, shielded his mortified wife and crying young son, John, from the embarrassing and terrifying onslaught. They came in the middle of the night, and due to the commotion, the entire neighborhood gathered, powerless to intervene. Now his young son, John, was born during that golden period of 1925, which categorized him in the famed greatest generation. These were the children of the Great Depression, who grew up tough, and when the world needed heroes, they answered the call to fight World War II. Upon arriving home, they oversaw the post-war boom that established America as a shining beacon of capitalism and freedom. 
Fast forward to 1956. Young John has grown up through the Depression in the tough side of Detroit. He enlisted in the Army after Pearl Harbor. He came home and sought to establish himself in the ranks of the automotive industry. He winds up in the engineering division of Pontiac, a small division of General Motors. As an up-and-coming brand, Pontiac was struggling to build an identity for itself. It began supplying NASCAR, which was still in its infancy. This was a push to align itself with speed and sleekness, going after a younger demographic. The head of Pontiac loved to say, quote, You can't sell an old man's car to a young man, but you can always sell a young man's car to an old man. End quote. This was contrary to the big guns way of thinking. They were focused on large, smooth rides. Quote, Each day the automotive industry princes of General Motors leave their homes in Birmingham and Bloomfield Hills to drive to work, down Woodward Avenue, which runs shotguns straight from the Detroit suburbs to GM headquarters, in big General Motors cars built to ride as smoothly as sailboats on glassy water. From where they sit, it's hard to imagine anyone wanting something different from a car." End quote. This would be known as the quote-unquote Detroit mind. The car executives had grown fat, rich, and lazy. They knew their own lane and they were moving increasingly further from the pulse of youth culture. With DeLorean at a high position at Pontiac, he represented a push of youthfulness and speed. Legend has it that the engineers would often test drive prototypes on the streets of Detroit during the night. Quote, when the streetlights come on, Woodward Avenue becomes one of America's hottest drag strips. Sometimes kids pull up at stoplights next to short-sleeved GM engineers driving cars with code names. Sometimes the GM guys would blow the kids off the roads, end quote. DeLorean and his colleagues at Pontiac would soon usher GM into the muscle car craze, and it would be a huge hit. Giant, roaring V8 engines would be crammed into smaller bodies. With the baby boomers rising to an age of power in the consumer world, youth culture was a gold mine to tap. It was edgy, cool, and exclusive. A Pontiac ad stated, quote, get one before you're too old to understand, end quote. This was a push for a midlife crisis car. The Pontiac GTO was a shining beacon of its generation. Some sporting cars are only pussycats. Pontiac's GTO is all tiger. And it was a product of DeLorean's brilliant engineering mind and rebellious tendencies. It also ushered in the muscle car era in America in 1964. One of the wide track tigers from Pontiac. Speaking of midlife crisis, this is the point where John DeLorean starts to feel himself. This is the montage in the Scorsese movie where the main character is swimming in luxurious pools with Playboy models while money and drugs rain down from the sky. He was a rock star in the city of rock and roll. An instantly recognizable businessman turned celebrity. What Pontiac represented about youth, speed, and the outlaw archetype, DeLorean took to heart. The young hotshot executive started drinking the Kool-Aid and started living the lifestyle of the legendary playboys before him. At this point, he gets significant plastic surgery on his face, including a facelift. He tells people the work was due to an injury from a crash at the test track. A result of going through the windshield face first, he tells people. Now to quote Alex Papademus again, which I'm going to do throughout this story because it's an incredible article. He writes, quote, 
John drives to work blasting Jefferson Airplane. John name drops Montaigne in blood, sweat, and tears. John shows off his art collection and his drum-tight abs. John tells one reporter he's writing a novel about nuclear war. John talks about young people leading a neo-religious metamorphosis in the culture and wonders out loud why his fellow auto execs feel obligated to vote Republican. John talks about studying the underground papers and FM rock radio for intel on the love generation as it comes to a car-buying age, end quote. And like every good midlife crisis, this causes a divorce. While John's career hits the stratosphere, he becomes a staple on the LA socialite scene. He dates models, actresses, and often storms the nightclub scene with Hollywood titans like Johnny Carson and Sammy Davis Jr. The inevitable marriages to women half his age follow. Not far behind are those divorces as well. After one such divorce, John tells the story of how his Hollywood buddies helped him cope. They took him to Malibu for some rest and relaxation. They gave him a present, three escorts that bared a striking similarity to his now ex-wife. John reportedly says that this gesture was one of the classiest things anyone has ever done for him. Only Californians would have the intellect to pull this off. No one from Detroit would be capable of it. John's bravado and growing persona was matched only by his success. He took Pontiac to new heights. He created the GTO. He was the father of the modern American muscle car. Under his leadership, Chevy had some of its most profitable years in history. One of John's friends describes him as a full-blown folk hero. While his Howard Hughes act, along with his unrelenting success, continued to capture headlines, it was also causing significant resentment. Not only was this a battle of youth versus the establishment, John also dipped into the never-ending battle between the blue-collar middle America and the West Coast elite. The old guard executives of the Motor City grew tired of his gossip column antics and opened distaste for Detroit and his seemingly non-stop hedonism on the West Coast. Though with all the press, the adulation, and the it factor working for him, John was in a dangerous position of standing tall against the man. The establishment would eventually hit back. While the Detroit mine may have been stale and open for attack, Detroit's power and vice grip on the industry was not. Despite this growing animosity, John continued his rise at GM through the 1960s and into the 1970s. He would eventually get all the way to head of GM's North American Car and Truck Division. He had an office on the infamous 14th floor of their headquarters. It's described as, quote, America's corporate Vatican. It was here that John's ascent finally sputtered out. What happens next is hotly debated. Whether it was a well-executed corporate ouster or an attempted power play that failed spectacularly, the result was John's split with General Motors. Either way, the corporate warfare is intriguing. The story goes that John was asked to give a presentation on manufacturing quality to the GM Board of Trustees, a group that included many of the infamous 14th floor generals. This was supposed to be a presentation under the utmost secrecy and need-to-know basis. It was going to be held in a luxury hotel in West Virginia that boasted a former bomb shelter meant for Congress to survive a nuclear holocaust. However this happened, transcripts of the speech were leaked to the press. Headlines rolled out about how GM was warning executives about the need to improve quality. Obviously, this was a bad look for the company. 
Was this a meticulously planned dismissal of a rogue employee that threatened the system with his individualism? Maybe. One of the preferred tools of corporate warfare had always been the use of private investigators. John's camp would claim an entire dossier was compiled for him to use as leverage or blackmail if the warfare would get serious enough to call for it. Some of this intelligence, however, claimed that the source of the leak was John himself, desperately trying to break free of the shackles that imprisoned him into a system that could no longer support his creativity and rising star. John was relinquished of his position within the company. They decided to market it as a resignation or even a retirement. John wrote to his former colleagues at GM, along with a veiled threat of having dirt on them should this split turn nasty. Quote, America has been good to me. And as I said, I feel strongly an obligation to devote a portion of my life to the betterment of our country. I do not believe this conflict with General Motors interests. If it does, then I'm afraid I must agree that I have no place in GM's future. It's an ominous statement from John that America had been good to him. We'll get more into that later. But John would spin this split as the point of his very own call to adventure in his heroic journey. Instead of continuing to peddle the same tired product onto the world, promising something fresh and new but just dressing up the same old product, he would venture out on his own. After all, he was a visionary. He had outgrown General Motors, and not the other way around. Despite getting axed by the man, DeLorean still had a lot of clout. He had friends in high places, especially in Hollywood. Now that he had broken free from the system, he could challenge it. Like Walter Chrysler before him, he would take on the monopoly that was the big auto, and the car world would never be the same again. The automobile business, always tough, has become even tougher in recent months. Some of the biggest manufacturers in the world are struggling to maintain good sales figures. It's not a game that sees many new players. But a new player, perhaps even a potential superstar, is coming. However, there's a reason that the big automotive companies remained at the top. Just like there's a reason that mob bosses hold power, or why the Yankees always win. They're playing from a position of power, and they can crush potential threats with minimum effort. While this inevitable split was playing out, John's friend and author William Haddad was worried. He thought of the GM building in Manhattan, with a foundation so strong and deep that it could withstand an earthquake. This was an allegory for the company itself. Haddad writes how GMs had seen many DeLoreans in the past, and they've all gone away. GM still stands tall. But John wasn't like these other hopefuls that disappeared in the junkyard of dreams and bankrupt car companies. John was going to make his move, to take his shot. America has been very good to me, he said to GM, and he would get many more shots of pure, uncut America into his veins. But he would not always feel the same high. You could say John would end up being given an overdose of America. The first order of business was to design the car of the future. It was going to be an ethical car. Giorgetto Giugari was a legend in the automotive design industry. The Italian designed both luxury showpiece cars as well as standard everyday vehicles. A prodigy at a young age, he became a chief engineer at age 22. In an over 50-year career, his company developed more than 100 concept cars and 300 production cars, of which more than 60 million units were sold. He ushered in what is known as the folded paper or automotive design. Worn and wound author Sean Laurentens wrote, 
quote, gone were the flowing round curves of previous iterations, replaced by flat surfaces and razor sharp edges. Designs became more geometric than organic, a trend that would continue throughout the design world until the 1990s. This angular look became the basis of Jugaro's own Ital Design Studio in 1967. Jugaro was the perfect artist and visionary for John DeLorean. I'll go back to Papademus' article discussing Jugaro. Quote, Jugaro envisions a sleek wedge of stainless steel. It looks a little like a Lamborghini and a little like a Tapiro, a concept car Jugaro designed for Porsche a few years earlier. It's unlike anything else on the road. It will still look futuristic even after they sit on the design for years while they scrape together money for the factory. DeLorean wants a rear-engine car with gull-wing doors and a stainless steel body. His other demands are mostly conceptual. DeLorean insists the DMC-12 come with a trunk big enough for a set of golf clubs, reportedly reminding his team this car is aimed at a particular section of the market, the horny bachelor who's made it. These two features are the most recognizable when it comes to the design for the DeLorean DMC-12. John had an idea for a forever car. One of his many criticisms of GM was that he believed it was irresponsible to the customer to build products meant to force them to come back for new ones a few years later. Paint rusts and makes cars look old. The DeLorean would have a stainless steel body, no need to paint. It wouldn't rust or wear. The second feature, and perhaps more recognizable, are the gullwing doors. No matter how you cut it, gullwings, or doors hinged on the roof that open upward instead of outward, have a timelessly futuristic look. It's a hell of an entrance to see someone emerge from a car in this manner. A sleek two-seater. It's different inside and out. On the surface and under the skin. The V6 engine nestles at the rear of a steel chassis that is dipped in epoxy to ensure a long life. A fiberglass underbody is fitted to the chassis and a brushed stainless steel skin is attached. The car's sculptured contours conceal a pair of gullwing doors that swing up for entry into the cockpit fitted with luxury features such as leather upholstery, stereo sound, electric windows. The DeLorean was not the first car to utilize this concept. In fact, it's been around since the early 1950s. As the conception of the car of the future is coming together, John needs to secure fundings and build a factory. He starts taking offers and seeking opportunities. Similar to Amazon and their HQ2, though not nearly to the same extent, he was being groomed by cities and countries eager for the opportunity to boost their employment numbers and spurred up economic growth. Original rumors are that Puerto Rico was the frontrunner over Spain, Pennsylvania, Canada, and even his hometown of Detroit. With the promise of a plant and the skilled jobs that it required, several locations continued their recruiting efforts. Puerto Rico emerged as the frontrunner. A workforce desperate for jobs could be paid low wages. It had the benefits of its own municipality as well as that of the United States. However, there was trouble securing the land for the plants, and things began to unravel. And it's important to note there are also a lot of reports that DeLorean himself was responsible for this unraveling. Unbeknownst to Puerto Rico, he was using them to drive up offers from other places. While they thought they were ironing out the final details, he was making plans elsewhere. A dark horse candidate had emerged during the final negotiations with Puerto Rico. Northern Ireland, one of the most notorious places of this time period, gave them a grandfather offer, and DeLorean took it. 
His confidants expressed their concern. They didn't even open mail from Belfast through fear it would be a bomb. While there was a plethora of skilled laborers, this was only because a previous car factory manager had been described as an impossible tyrant that caused an uprising in the labor force. This result in a full-fledged kidnapping of a plant manager. During the early negotiations with Northern Ireland, DeLorean conveyed the sentiment of most of his friends and co-workers. Quote, they'd be better off economically dead in America than plain dead in Belfast. DeLorean talks about how he unknowingly put himself in the middle of a 600-year-old conflict. On their first visit to Belfast, the DeLorean crew got a taste of life in the Protestant vs. Catholic War. Their hotel had been bombed 28 times, and they screened through countless metal detectors, checkpoints, and bomb-sniffing dogs. They moved around in bulletproof cars. This time period in Ireland was known as the Troubles, which is an understatement to say the least. This was one of the most dangerous places in the world. Estimates are, during these troubles, about a 30-year period, 3,500 people died, 50,000 injured. Industrialists, politicians, priests, and other prominent members of society were often targets of bombing and kidnappings. A war hero named Ari Neve came to Belfast to tour the site of the future factory. A mere six weeks later, he steps into his car while leaving the House of Parliament and is ripped apart by a car bomb planted by the IRA. Many believe it was his death that caused Margaret Thatcher to sour on Northern Ireland for the remainder of her career. She came to power while the DeLorean company was in its infancy. As a new automotive company, capital was quickly running low, and the British government was their main investor. Any change in heart and their support could put the new company underwater. Despite this hostile environment, DeLorean was encouraged. He claims that the thought of aiding the poverty he saw was heartwarming, and that in the Irish he saw a, quote, fiercely proud people with a history of great manufacturing skills. They were shipbuilders and master craftsmen forced from their jobs due to the changing world around them. The plant would be built in a neutral zone between Catholics and Protestants. An even distribution of Catholic and Protestants were hired. DeLorean claims that in order to draw engineering talent, most of whom feared Northern Ireland, a 50% terrorist bonus was offered. Before the plant broke ground, tensions were high, even for Northern Ireland standards. Nearby the future plant was the infamous Maze, a maximum security prison, or more formally known as Her Majesty's Prison Maze. This facility held many infamous criminals, or heroes depending on which side you're on, of the Irish Republican Army. Among the inmates was Bobby Sands, a Robin Hood-like figure worshipped by his followers. He was leading a dirty protest in the prison, in which the prisoners refused to bathe or wear clothing. Eventually, this dirty protest would evolve into a hunger strike. Within two years, many would die, including Sands. Upon signing the deal for the factory, a ceremony was held in which three trees were planted, symbolizing the collaboration of Catholics, Protestants, and the Brits. Bobby Sands' wake would soon take place within 100 yards of these trees. Author Nick Sutton writes, quote, So welcome to Belfast, 1978, Dodge City in all but name, complete with cowboys but little sign of the sheriff. He would arrive with a peace process 17 years later on what locals believed to be the slowest horse in town, end quote. I'll quote Sutton again in his description because he's very good. This was when, quote, In a splash of technicolor and glamour, John DeLorean came to Belfast, complete with his entourage. The scene could have been lifted from a Hollywood blockbuster. His glamorous wife Christina, the leading lady. The main player in the drama was, of course, 
the magnificent stainless steel gullwing sports car, then just a photograph and a couple of prototypes, end quote. The groundbreaking ceremonies were met with severe protests and many feared violence. Construction itself was delayed because of Irish superstition. There was a lone plant in the middle of the plot of land that would be the factory. What seemed to be no more than a bush was dubbed a fairy tree. Irish legend goes that he who removes a fairy tree will suffer lifelong misery not just for themselves but for their family as well. Construction crews refused to touch it. Legend has it that the project manager buried $200 under the tree and offered it as a prize to anyone who removed the tree and got to it. Overnight the tree was finally gone. However, rumors are that the man who took up the offer later lost his arm in a construction accident. It's also very telling how the project manager went to such lengths to entice someone instead of removing the tree himself. William Haddad, the former DeLorean executive, recalls a dismayed Irish workman saying to him, it's a dark day, you have wrecked everything we're building. The fairy tree will see to that, end quote. With the physical problem of the extraction cured, the event adds an air of cursedness to an already hostile atmosphere. While this danger looms and problems pile up, DeLorean becomes fearful and stressed. He fears for his safety in Belfast, so he rarely stays long, chauffeuring in and out on helicopters and private jets. He tries to get himself a custom bulletproof trench coat that he heard Henry Kissinger had. While he was able to raise capital with charm and marketing himself as a visionary, he is also able to burn through it at an unsustainable pace. Most of this money is the British government money. The exorbitant costs associated with the political issues revolving around the plants, the functional issues with the execution of manufacturing the car, and most interestingly, his own lavish tastes weigh heavy on the company. DeLorean once said, quote, I'd rather be sterilized than go second class, end quote and he continued to live accordingly, despite the rapidly depleting bankroll. He buys a house on the snobbiest building in Fifth Avenue. During this time, DeLorean was tiptoeing across a tightrope. That's probably too easy of a task to describe it as. It was more like he was driving his car across a high wire in a hurricane while balancing a fine china on his hood. When the first DeLorean rolls out of the factory, the initial target price of 12K had ballooned to 25K. He became paranoid that government forces were working against him. If he feared threats on his life, he began a relationship with a New York City fortune teller. More on this later. Although John himself would obviously refute this sentiment in his autobiography, Alex Papadamus writes, quote, The cars don't matter. They start out as an idea DeLorean can raise money behind and will become an asset he can trade on as the walls close in. That's all they ever are. No matter what their present-day cargo cult might tell you, they're not the future of anything. They're standard parts in a beautiful shell. The man who puts his name on the cars is the future, a hungry ghost borrowing ever more boldly against ever more notional success. He understands that business in America is whatever you can get away with. He builds himself a gilded life and finds bigger and bigger suckers to pick up his tab." Quote. Now John would claim that the DeLorean Motor Company was his life. He says he poured his heart and soul into it, but coincidentally, rarely his own money. He's able to secure funding from multiple investors, swaying them with his charm and vision. He secures dealerships to sell his products by going from town to town with a presentation, a movie about his dream and his process. When the short film ends, there's his DeLorean unveiled on stage with the gold wings spread wide in all their glory. Inside. The sleek stainless steel DeLorean.
automobiles in automotive history. Drive the DeLorean. Live the dream today. John once described a race car driver he grew to know as having, quote, ice in his veins and larceny in his heart. John's friend and co-worker, Mr. Haddad, believes this was a better description of him. With these investments, as well as the cash infusion from the British government, John secures well over $100 million, which would have to be enough, even though many peg the necessary capital to start an automotive company at nearly $300 million. Despite this, DeLorean set himself and his company to an impossible timeline. He guaranteed production of the cars to a deadline that most companies couldn't deliver in double that time. Therefore, the entire design and manufacturing process was a giant mess. He had bought the patents to rights to a cutting-edge process of fusing an underbelly of a car, a process that did not yet exist. This process never ended up working, only adding to the mountains of cash that they were burning through. According to early designs, a crash around 25 miles an hour would cause the engine and transmission, which if you remember were in the rear, to surge forward and crush the driver and passenger. What saved the DeLorean model, for the time being at least, was decision to hire Lotus, a renowned and celebrated manufacturer from the UK. They were makers of both sports and race cars, and they're considered royalty in the car industry. They ran a successful team in Formula One for many years. Their company is based out of a former airfield where the Royal Air Force launched their defense in the Battle of Britain. They made sure that a working car would be delivered on time. Well, here it is, unquestionably the most talked about car here at Motor Fair, the car in which all of us as British taxpayers own a slice to the tune of 77 million pounds, the DeLorean. And with me here, Mr. John DeLorean, Mr. DeLorean, they tell me that you're the best salesman in the world. If I came to you, how would you sell me one of your cars? Well, I think, number one, uh, the allegation that I'm a great salesman is a gross exaggeration. I'm, uh, essentially, I'm an engineer, and I like a, a product, I like technical things. Very proud of our car, which essentially, I think, is a, is a major engineering contribution to the state-of-the-art of automobiles. I think if I were trying to sell it to you, I'd sell it to you on the basis that it's a very comfortable, uh, outstanding uh, performance, outstanding handling, a car that has, because of its stainless steel skin and the fact that we use all non-corrosive materials in the chassis, a car that will last for many, many years. And as a result, we'll preserve your investment so that in the end, we hope that your cost of owning this car for a long time will be very, very small. And working car is not the best way to describe the first models that sold. Working would have to be put in quotation marks. The quality of the cars was more than an issue. They are, to put it loosely, pieces of shit. But damn, they're stylish, good-looking pieces of shit. The stainless steel body, the gullwing doors, these doors were part of the major problems of the car. They're examples of the doors not working and owners becoming trapped inside. The fuel efficiency and speed are lackluster at best. The battery life is abysmal. DeLorean's buddy, Johnny Carson, purchases one, and it breaks down right after he drives it off the lot. At a car show in Detroit, the gullwing doors fail to open, trapping the driver inside for hours. But despite these issues, the DeLorean sells. They don't fly off the shelves, but they sell. John claims that he was meeting the numbers needed to sustain success, but the one-two punch of the British government altering their original deal and the unseen forces of labor strikes and recession doomed him. Sometimes timing is poor. There are many things DeLorean brought on himself, but larger uncontrollable factors worked against him as well. Right as the model was ready to sell, the US was hit with a major economic recession. 
DeLorean had named his first model the DMC-12 because it was supposed to cost $12,000. A high price for that time period, but competitive with most luxury automobiles. However, due to all the kinks and issues with productions, the feasible sale price ballooned to $25,000. Now we're going to go back and take a look at DeLorean's growing relationship with Sonya, the fortune teller we spoke about before. Sonya was the classic mystic con artist using simple tricks to wow her marks while slowly building trust and dependence. With DeLorean, it began when she put a jar of water under his wife's seat during their meeting. At the end of the meeting, she retrieved the jar and it was full of blood. The DeLoreans were having trouble conceiving a child. Sonia told them that it would come. It did. The marks were hooked. While DeLorean's wife was her initial client, Sonia moved her attention to John, a much fatter prize. John writes in his autobiography, quote, what Sonia had was an occult sensitivity to power. She could tell you specific things about your life that would have been impossible to know, aside from some special sense. When I was numb from exhaustion, she became my turbocharger, my power boost. Through her, I believed, I could directly reach some divine power source. What I did not realize that while I was being sucked into the occult, she played on my pride and foolishness. End quote. Now, while it seems ridiculous that an automotive visionary would allow himself to get sucked in by a two-bit con artist with a neon sign on her store flashing psychic, these people have conned their marks for thousands of years. It's a successful con. It's been around, and it will continue to be. This is yet another sprung leak in John's wallet. And as we've previously alluded to, John often had difficulty differentiating his own money from that of the company. The low fuel light on the DeLorean Motor Company was flashing. Soon it would be running on empty. Now, like every great 80s rags to riches story, we're going to introduce you to another central character, cocaine. Cue the montage where cocaine is flying, powdering everything in sight. Cocaine fits in perfectly with other symbols of wealth, hedonism, and exorbitance that defines a good chunk of the 80s. Unlike most doomed 80s characters that can't keep their noses clean, DeLorean was never entrapped by the effects of this wonder drug. He was attracted to cocaine by the cash that ran with it. Now why is cocaine so prevalent in the 80s? Well, this is the time of Miami Vice and the reign of Pablo Escobar. As the 80s did everything big, and people did everything to put their wealth and power on display, there was no wealthier, classier, or more social drug than cocaine. You could stay up all night, all the stars were doing it. To quote Rick James, cocaine is a hell of a drug. This popularity led to the rise of Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel. At his peak, Escobar brought in more than $70 million per day, or over $26 billion per year. Over 15 tons of cocaine per day were being smuggled into the US. This cash was inescapably alluring to many, especially a desperate John DeLorean. Only the simplest trap had to be set and DeLorean would come running. John's connection to this underworld is a man named James Hoffman. Hoffman was responsible for pulling DeLorean into a downward spiral of drug trade, and DeLorean obviously held him to a low opinion when he describes him. According to DeLorean, Hoffman led a life of degeneracy and dishonesty. He claims that his own investigations into Hoffman reveals that he once ran a Bible-selling con as a young adult. After scouring the obituaries, he would ring the doorbell of a deceased residence. When he was told the person he sought had recently passed, he pretended to be devastated. He had come to deliver a Bible they had personally ordered. This was no ordinary King James Bible, but custom. He would convince the grieving family to pay an exorbitant price for this memory of their loved one. 
Hoffman eventually ditched the Bible scam to enter the more lucrative narcotics world. He began to run drugs, and unsurprisingly he was eventually caught. To escape a harsh sentence, he turned rat, or became an informant. He had become the bait used by the authorities to seal convictions. And to continue to make himself useful, he would work hard to lure bigger and bigger fish. A fellow drug trafficker reportedly described Hoffman as a man that, quote, would fuck his own mother for 25 cents, end quote. And to add a little extra salt to his description, DeLorean repeatedly states in his book that Hoffman had poor personal hygiene and smelled terrible. Now, the nature of Hoffman and DeLorean's relationship is murky and became the focus of a future criminal trial. DeLorean claims he was entrapped. The government claims that he came looking for trouble. DeLorean says that Hoffman once worked for a guy his wife previously dated. Hoffman also rented a house in the same town DeLorean owned a home. Their sons had once gone motorcycle riding together. And despite this six degrees of Kevin Bacon relationship, DeLorean claims he only spoke one time to him in his driveway. They exchanged pleasantries, and DeLorean believed him to be in the airline industry. This was back in 1980. Eventually, Hoffman reached out to DeLorean and offered a line to investors. Since DeLorean was drowning, he was reaching for any available lifeline, no matter how faint or implausible. DeLorean claims he continued to believe Hoffman's connections were legitimate until he found himself in too deep. He describes it as an inescapable grip of the cartels that would force him to do their dirty work, launder their money, and anything else they needed to squeeze out of him. John recalls a late-night phone call from Hoffman. When he tried to back out of the potential deal, the underlying threat became overt. Hoffman said, quote, You know too much. You can't get out. If you try to get out, there'll be a bloody mess. I'll send your baby's daughter's head in a shopping bag. End quote. Whether DeLorean continued the deal out of morbid fear or unbridled greed is open for debate. Whatever the circumstances, an agreement was reached to provide DeLorean with $10 million in cartel money, enough to stave off the British government and keep the plant running. In return, these secret investors would get interest in the company, as well as a return on their investment as the cars sold. DeLorean flew to LA in October of 1982 in order to complete the deal. The DeLorean company was out of options to keep the plant running. DeLorean himself admits that he was on so many prescription pills that his thinking, emotions, and ability to ascertain reality was a jumbled mess. Nightly, he would dose up on pills that put him into a restless sleep. Come morning, he would equal that dose with an upper to pull him out of the foggy state in which he had awoken. Both medications magnified his anxiety. He was strung out. The clock was about to strike midnight for the DeLorean Motor Company. This was their Hail Mary pass. DeLorean claims that he believed he might be killed, but was willing to lay it all on the line for a chance to save his company. He drafted a letter to his lawyer, explaining that he was attempting a miracle by allowing organized crime to fund the company. In return, they would only receive a plant of which they would have no control of, or as he wrote, quote, a minor position in a government-owned factory in war-torn Belfast, end quote. DeLorean instructs his lawyer to bring the letter to the authorities if he dies under suspicious circumstances. The heading on the letter, quote, do not open until 1984. The callback to Back to the Future is almost too obvious not to point out. Dear Dr. Brown, on the night that I go back in time, you will be shot by terrorists. Please take whatever precautions are necessary to prevent this terrible disaster. Your friend, Marty. Marty. 
Anyway, when DeLorean enters the meeting in LA, he doesn't know it, but his fate has already been sealed. The clock had moved way past midnight on his dream, his company, and now his freedom. He walks into the hotel room dreaming about a miracle, but like most dreams in Los Angeles, this was over before it began. The FBI had made their case, and DeLorean was arrested on the spot. The good news was that he wasn't killed by drug dealers, but the bad news that he was perp-walked to the prison under the flashbulbs of the media, who he claims was appropriately informed of his impending doom by the very same forces that had been coordinating to destroy him from the get-go. Good evening, this is the CBS Evening News. Dan Rather reporting. It's a story of big business, big pressure, big money, and the crime of cocaine. It's the story of how and why the FBI caught automaker John Z. DeLorean, and it became a bit clearer today. Gary Shepard reports from Los Angeles. It was here that he was found guilty in the court of public opinion. There were pictures and videos of him toasting over the cocaine deal. The mighty John DeLorean had fallen. Quote, This is the story of a man with a dream. John DeLorean and how he turned that dream into a nightmare. A nightmare composed of failure, drugs, and disgrace. End quote. This was the opening statement from the prosecution. What follows is referred to as the drug trial of the century. It would dominate headlines worldwide. This drug conspiracy involved the FBI, DEA, CIA, IRS, DOJ, the Attorney General's Office, Interpol, and the White House, boasted one of the defendants that went on to pen the book In DeLorean's Shadow. In a trial that would last over four months, the prosecution would make their case that DeLorean came looking for a drug deal, for any and all illegal means to make a buck, and keep his company and lifestyle afloat. They argued that he knew full well about Hoffman's criminal background and involvement in drugs when their contact began. The defense's case was simple. DeLorean was entrapped by a government looking to catch a prize, and he was the victim of the corrupt system of pay-for-play informants creating criminals to feed authorities in order to lessen their jail time and get paid. The defense was brilliant. One fascinating cross-examination involved a discussion revolving around what DeLorean could have done in the hotel room to prevent his imminent arrest. The prosecution's witness struggled to handle the question. Since a trap had already been laid, it could not be unsprung for lack of a better term. They eventually concluded that he would have had to declare openly that he would not involve himself in illegal activity and make known his intention to go to the authorities. The defense painted this as comedic, since what person in their right mind would expose themselves in front of what they thought to be mafia, murderers, and drug traffickers? Another great statement coming during the closing remarks was the vicious cycle that DeLorean was caught in from arrest to trial. Basically, as the defense said, the informant is happy because he brings the authorities a fat prize. The authorities are happy because now they have something to show for their work. Being a member of the jury is beneficial as they get to sit in a fascinating and interesting case. The prosecution is thrilled as this is a chance to put a serious notch in their belt which could lead to career enhancements. Even the defense itself admits that it is a dream to defend someone like DeLorean. Everyone, it seems, is benefiting from the arrest and trial of John DeLorean. That is, except for John DeLorean. DeLorean's defense would be one for the ages, and is often cited and gushed over in law schools around the country. The jury concluded that the government had created the criminal. DeLorean would not have committed the crimes if the government had not enticed him to do so. Entrapment. Not guilty on all accounts, DeLorean was a free man. But this was not without casualties. 
The DMC company was in its death throes and would soon dissolve. DeLorean talks about how his third marriage soon ended. He talks about how many people he once considered close friends would duck out of the way on the street to avoid interacting with him. He did take solace in that he found God during his short stay in prison. He was born again and cites this as a major turning point in his life throughout his autobiography. However, he went on thinking that governmental forces, two governments actually, as well as rival titans in the automotive industry, had conspired against him to sink his dream and his company. And sink it they did, literally. The dye, that is D-I-E, which is a specialized molding tool used in manufacturing industries to cut or shape material, kind of like a press. The dyes for the DeLorean cars were eventually spotted at the bottom of the ocean floor in the Galway Bay. You can actually find pictures of these dyes in their final resting place if you scour the internet hard enough. So why does the DeLorean name still have meaning today? It was a short-lived, poor-performing car built by an American Icarus that flew too close to the sun and pissed away a legendary career and in the process disrupted the lives of thousands of employees that trusted him. Haddad paints a somber and disheartening image of the people DeLorean actually betrayed. These were the factory workers and families in Northern Ireland. They had busted their asses to move these cars and genuinely believed in what they were doing. They had pride in the DeLorean Motor Company. The first DMC-12s shipped to America during the Bobby Sands hunger strikes. Haddad remembers following those first shipments of cars from the factory to the docks on their way to America. He writes, quote, there was a stink and irritation of tear gas in the air as the trailer trucks drove through town. People stopped in the streets to look. As I followed one of the trailers to the docks in my DeLorean, there was a constant sound of applause behind me. People said it made the entire city feel a sense of accomplishment. The DeLorean seemed the only light in a dark sky." End quote. Having one of the only 9,000 DeLoreans that were actually produced before the company went belly up would be a decent collector's item on its own but there was no true aura of the car beyond embarrassment. However, it was pushed into our 80s lexicon by a starring role in a 1985 film. Michael J. Fox plays the role of a lifetime as Marty McFly. When the DeLorean first comes onto the screen, it emerges out of the fog. Marty screams out of puzzlement to his friend Dr. Emmett Brown, played by Christopher Lloyd. Wait a minute, are you telling me you built a time machine out of DeLorean? Doc nods in affirmation. The way I see it, if you're going to build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? To many, Back to the Future is one of the most beloved movies ever made. Because of it, if you ever see a DeLorean in real life, it's an immediate photo op. Personally, my heart skips a beat. As the movie itself is timeless, the DeLorean has become timeless as well. John DeLorean wanted to build a forever car, and in a roundabout way he did. Today. Miraculously, you can actually buy a brand new DeLorean. A company in Houston purchased the rights and all of the unused original parts. You can custom order your very own DeLorean DMC-12, although it's not cheap at all. So that's it, the story of the United States versus John DeLorean. Who won? We'll take a quick break and come back with some final thoughts. The DeLorean offers a new kind of motoring for the 80s. Luxury, performance, and a style all its own. It's a new player in a tough game, but it promises to make its mark.
So I know I've said this podcast will focus on specific places and the histories and stories centered around them. And this episode was a bit of a swerve as it focused on a single individual. However, to me, and hopefully to you, this story was just too good to pass up. And it involved the history of the car this podcast is named after. The main setting of this story was America itself, as I see this as one of the most quintessential 1980s American stories imaginable. You've got the tough blue-collar auto industry that became the unbeatable corporation. You have the Midwest versus the coastal elite. Then you've got an outsider that tried to take them on. A playboy obsessed with youth culture taking on the establishment. A visionary with a thirst for more and more in life. This is pure, unbridled, unfiltered capitalism and ambition. Then there are the forays into foreign lands. Sprinkle in some cocaine and undercover cops, the story has everything. I know the importance of visionaries and creators like John DeLorean. These are the dreamers and the people that can forge a new path to the future. Henry Ford, Walt Disney, all of these types of people were similar. It's interesting to delve into the story of one of these visionaries that did not make it. Looking at DeLorean's life and career, I'm fascinated by how he almost did make his dream happen. In an alternate reality, things could have broken his way. During his prime, when he was a toast of the automotive world, he flirted with the idea of running for political office. While creating the DeLorean Motor Company, he had plans to grow it into a multi-dimensional corporation. All of these things could have happened. It's kind of scary because I think there's a lot of evidence that he was an unethical, greedy, and selfish person. Almost sociopathical sometimes. We always hear the cliched statement, shoot for the moon, if you miss you'll be among the stars. Or shoot for the stars, if you fall you'll land on a cloud. I think that's a Kanye West lyric. John DeLorean repeatedly shot for the stars, but he ended up on the bottom of the ocean, where the parts of his plants now rest. Unfortunately, he took a lot of people with him. He seemed to be a person that was focusing on obtaining as much as he could as fast as he could. He didn't look back or worry about the long-term repercussions of his actions. He just sped on. He said to the world what Marty McFly said in his own DeLorean when the enemies were closing in. Let's see if you bastards can do 90. service in California's Mojave Desert, a posh motel in Newport Beach, a small bank south of San Francisco, all pieces of the intriguing puzzle of how John DeLorean became involved in a $24 million cocaine deal. The pieces are now beginning to fit together. CBS News has learned from reliable sources inside the investigation that the U.S. Attorney's Office here in Los Angeles designed the plan that brought John DeLorean together with William Hetrick described by authorities as one of California's biggest cocaine dealers. Here's how it worked. By last May, federal undercover agents were aware that Hetrick needed to hide huge amounts of cash being generated by his drug operations. The agents offered to set up a money laundering scheme at the Eureka Savings and Loan Association a few miles south of San Francisco. Hetrick jumped at the opportunity, agreeing to pay them with cocaine. Two months later, John DeLorean approached a government informant who knew Hetrick at a hotel in Newport Beach, California. The flamboyant auto executive said he was interested in arranging a drug deal to raise $60 million to save his failing sports car company. 
Law enforcement sources tell CBS News Assistant U.S. Attorney James Walsh dreamed up the idea of introducing DeLorean to drug dealer Hetrick. The plan was carried out, and DeLorean's subsequent meetings with the dealers were then videotaped by federal authorities, who finally arrested him earlier this week. The question of entrapment, whether John DeLorean was unlawfully lured by federal agents into committing a crime, is one strategy DeLorean's new attorney will have to tackle, although experts say it is not likely to work. Joseph Ball, 79 years old, took over the case late yesterday. What about bail, sir? <laughs> I think the bail will be posted. When? Probably Monday or Tuesday. Ball is one of Southern California's top criminal lawyers. In the Mojave Desert today, aircraft and other equipment owned by Hetrick's aviation firm were impounded by the Internal Revenue Service, along with two luxury boats in Florida, part of a $6.5 million tax lien for alleged income tax evasion growing out of Hetrick's drug operations. Ironically, there were reports today that while all this was going on, a loan broker in Cleveland was on the verge of approving a $200 million loan that could have saved DeLorean's company. Gary Shepard, CBS News, Los Angeles. When the DeLorean car first rolled out of the factory in Ireland last year, much of America was rooting for its success. Its creator, former General Motors executive John DeLorean, had thumbed his nose at the big automakers, saying he'd show the industry how to build cars. DeLorean started his own company and urged consumers to share his fantasy. Live the dream. Drive the DeLorean today. The car's glamorous image was enhanced by DeLorean himself. A former GM whiz kid, he was also a maverick. His flamboyant private life raised eyebrows in corporate circles. He was a big spender who loved beautiful women and was obsessed with his youthful appearance. In 1973, he left his $600,000 a year job at GM, claiming the industry was so immoral, the climb to the top was no longer worth it. He set out to make what he called an ethical car. I'm sure that, like anything else, there are a certain number of people with a, amounts of jealousy who would like to see us fall on our face. We're not going to do that. It took seven years from the inception of DeLorean's dream to the first car. In that time, the economy sagged and car sales collapsed. But because of astronomical startup costs for any car company, analysts say DeLorean was doomed to fail. I think in these days of multi-billion dollar investments in new automobiles, that it's impossible to fight General Motors, and for that matter, it's impossible to fight Chrysler and Ford and Honda and Datsun. Those who work for DeLorean say the prospect of failure panicked him, clouding his judgment. He began to produce more cars without waiting for demand to catch up. Building inventory is not a good, sound business practice in the automobile business. And DeLorean did exactly that last fall. And I think that was one of the key elements in the final demise of the company. Finally, this week, the end. The closing of the company, the arrest on drug charges. Ironically, it is now, during DeLorean's nightmare, that his dream may finally come true. In the last two days, DeLorean's sales have boomed and prices have jumped, spurred by hopes that the car will be a collector's item. As for DeLorean, some say he failed because he became like the Detroit executives he despised, driven and finally desperate for success. Linda Douglas, CBS News, Beverly Hills. New York's chemical plant. Now, our sources for this episode are plentiful. There's a ton of books written about this and articles 
one of my favorite articles to read, which is a long-form article but not an entire book, is called Demon Underneath, John DeLorean and the Invention of the Future by Alex Papademus. Then if you wanted to get into books, uh, I particularly enjoyed Hard Driving, My Gears with John DeLorean by William Haddad. And I also cited DeLorean's own autobiography, just called DeLorean, but that obviously can be very biased considering it was written by him, but might be worth checking out. Make sure to check out the show notes for all the sources we used for the episode. Special thanks to the production team, Van Vorst Films, who produce and edit this podcast. Until next time, thank you for joining us tonight, and hopefully we'll see you in the future.